That song naturally fades out in the recording, which is what we tried to recreate there. Um, so, welcome. Happy Sunday, everybody. What another beautiful Sunday morning at the park. Can we give it up for just how lucky we have been on Sunday mornings? Relatively, I think we've only had two Sundays affected by weather, so that's great. And now the next four will be. That's how this is going to work. So, um, hey, friends, we have a really, uh, we've got a fun announcement today. We've had an excellent, excellent summer at the park. We started here May 2nd, so it's been one, two, three, four, now almost five months that we've been here, and it's been a really, really special time. But um, the weather is about to change. I don't know if you feel that in the darker nights, but it is going to get colder and snowier um, and the wind is going to blow a little harder and Mike Gathright wants to stay outside he wants to be here he's been advocating for that but we've had to just remind him that that is just not possible and so we will be moving back inside and we will be moving to the solarium uh, in Stevensville um, which is very very exciting uh, Chris and Justin uh, and Juice and David, the Watermark boys have been really, really fun to work with over the last couple of weeks that we've been preparing for this. And so we will have a couple more weeks here. We'll be here through the 17th of October. We're gonna take a couple transition weeks and then our first Sunday in the solarium will be that first Sunday in November. But we'll get those details out. You don't have to worry about those. We'll, we'll over communicate that to you. Um, but yeah, that's where we're gonna be uh, in just a few weeks. We'll be at the solarium, which is in Stevensville, um, right over by uh, Watermark Brewery, actually. So, which is very, very exciting. So thank you, thank you for being here. Thank you for following us over there. Last announcement, on Thursday mornings at 10 a.m., we have a women's Bible study that meets at uh, the Bancroft's office, at Joy Bancroft's house. Is she here today? I don't think she is, I haven't seen her yet. Um, but that is happening at 10 a.m. on Thursday mornings. If you want more information about that, you can find me or Roberta at one of the hubs. When with that, have a wonderful Sunday morning.
I don't think so. Oh, there I am. Good morning, Storyline. So good to be together. Another beautiful day at the park. Abby, thank you so much for singing. That was beautiful. So um, isn't it exciting to figure out where we're going to be this fall? Oh, I'm really excited about it. Yeah. Um, I knew it had to be someplace, but a little Storyline trivia for y'all, okay? The Solarium, which is in downtown Stevensville, just behind the watermark, it's the 11th place that Storyline will call home in our 17 years, okay? So we are a nomadic people, right? And as challenging as moving all that all so many times has been, it's actually, we found it to be something uh, of a really good reminder for us that Storyline is not and has never been a place. It's not about a location. We don't have an address. You can't find Storyline on a map. Storyline is a community, and we're on a mission. We're a community on a mission, and its location is in our hearts, and our hands, and our feet, and the way that we love, and we care, and we serve for people, and we take that mission, and we take our community with us wherever we are, and not just on Sunday mornings. And so um, this is one of the reasons that we talk so much about and we wonder about and we marvel at how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus both creates this kind of meaning in us and inspires that kind of purpose in us. Because Jesus' life, death, and resurrection makes God's grace possible and visible and desirable and livable. And that gets us on this mission together. And I think moving to a brewery highlights all of that, right? Now, I am, I'm super excited about it, and I don't even drink beer, okay? Now, there are lots of details to work out yet. So like Paul said, please, I've got an info card right here. Uh, it's never been more important that we make sure that we have your um, up-to-date email address and home address. Drop it in the um, giving box because... We have a lot of details that will be coming out in the next few weeks about what that's going to look like at Solarium and with Kidport and all those kinds of things. So it's very exciting. So I can't tell you how excited I was and relieved to get last week over with. If you were here, you know that's true, right? Like it was only the second time in all of Storyline in our entire history that I've spoken about money. And um, some of you even came back. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. And, and one of the things about reading through a book of the Bible together, like we've been doing with the book of Luke this summer, is that you never know like what's going to come up next. Like I, I can't kind of just cherry pick whatever it is I want to talk about. There it is. There's Jesus talking about something else. So it was this huge relief for me to like finally close chapter 12 of Luke and get to chapter 13 to find Jesus talking about a brand new subject. Like, thank goodness, right? Like, one that's so much lighter, it's so much more cheery, it's just downright fun from top to bottom. The topic this morning is repentance. Yes, and hold your applause, okay? Right, so gosh, I hope you've invited your friends the last couple weeks, money and now repentance. Man, this guy knows what he's doing up here, right? So, um, following up money with repentance, yeah. So I'm actually kidding because um, I know that repentance is this like antiquated word. It's a word we don't use. I, frankly, in my opinion, it's kind of been this word that religion has ruined, that, that we never think about, we don't use it. Um, but I do, I do think about this word a lot because I think it gets a bad rap, frankly. And it gets a bad, it comes by this rap honestly. I mean, because really the only time we hear the word repentance, someone is usually screaming it at us on a television screen or a street corner, and it's not love in their eyes when they're saying it, right? So it's seen, understandably so. Repentance is seen as bad news. It's like, it's some kind of like morbid obligation that God is demanding from us to like hate ourselves or something. And, but the real story is very, very different. And so I'm actually really excited to talk about this this morning because repentance is actually an invitation. It is something that we get to do. It's something that we get to do, and it's really an incredible opportunity that God is trying to give to us if we'll accept it. And so this is how Luke 13 begins. There's a, a man comes to Jesus and he informs them, him of this horrible 
tragedy, that's an atrocity really, that's just occurred. He tells him that Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, overseer of Israel, has just ordered the killing of some Galileans. Gal Galilee was a, one of the small sections of Israel, so sometimes where Jesus was from. Um, he has just ordered that these Galileans be killed, and he did it while they were at church. Okay? So obviously a despicable act. And the subtext is, Jesus, what do you think these people did wrong to deserve that? Like, this horrible tragedy, this horrible atrocity has befell these people. So like, man, they must have done something really bad for God to, to make or let that happen. And this is how Jesus responds. Jesus responded, do you think those murdered Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Not at all. Unless you turn to God, repent, you too will perish. And by the way, he brings up another thing that happened. And by the way, how about those 18 people in Jerusalem last week? Uh, the ones killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were worse, worse citizens than you? Not at all. Because unless you repent, unless you turn to God, you too will perish. And then he told them a story. A man had a fig tree planted in a garden, in his garden. And he came to, ex to expect to find figs on this fig tree. But there weren't any. And so he said to his gardener, what's going on here? For three years, I've been coming to this fig tree to get figs, and I haven't found even one. Chop it down. Why are we wasting good ground on this fig tree? But the gardener pleaded with him, let's give it another year. Let me take care of it. I'll dig around it. I'll fertilize it. I'll water it. And, and maybe it will produce next year. So, now I know that repent or perish sounds like a really bad advertising campaign, right? Like, repent or else. It sounds like a threat, really. And, and I know it's been used that way. We've all see it, seen it on these horrible bumper stickers, on billboards, and even worse, on church signs, right? We haven't done that yet at Storyline. We don't have a sign. So, um, but Jesus isn't threatening us with this. He's not. He isn't saying, or else. What he's saying is, or else. Repent, or else. Because or else has already begun. Or else is already around us. Or else is already within us. Or else is a trajectory that we've all chosen. But now, because of the grace of God, here's the really good news. There's another choice. We're not limited to just or else. See, all of this makes repentance, I think, this loaded subject. It's, it's one that... that I think we have a lot of questions about, and it's not just us. It's been going on for many, many years. People have been debating this. For instance, Lord Byron, a poet, an English poet, claimed this, the weak alone repent. Like you have to be a really weak person to repent or to need to. Shakespeare, on the other hand, said this, I need to repent and immediately, for I may lose heart and then I won't have strength. So Shakespeare's on the other side. And so my first question I wanna think about is, who's right, Lord Byron or William Shakespeare? Is repentance a sign of weakness or does it require strength? And I think it's fair to say in today's world, the way we look at this is that we would side with Lord Byron. We would say he's right, like to repent is a sign of weakness. Another poet, W.E. Henley, in lines that are more famous than he is, uh, sums up our modern attitude, I think, this way. He wrote this in a poem. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Now, do you hear what he's saying? It's like, Sure, you know, in the past, there was a time 
when people, you know, they thought about the straight path and the narrow gate, about like heavenly scrolls with rules on it, but things have changed now. You know, we're not into that now. We don't care about those kinds of things. I alone determine what's right and wrong for me. I'm the one who deciphers and decides and makes the rules. I'm the captain of my own soul. I guess you could make the point, if you really think about it, that in our modern framework, repentance isn't a sign of weakness as much as it just makes no sense at all. Really, like, repent. Why? Of what? To whom? Why would I do that? One of the things that we talk about a lot when we're together is the grace of God. And we've talked about how it's impossible to define or encapsulate. It's this massive and beautiful and marvelous mystery. But one of the ways we talk about it is that the grace of God is this reality that there's nothing we can do to get God on our side because he's already on our side. Now, I've had many people tell me over the years that that message right there has changed their life, has completely and totally changed their life, released them from debilitating guilt, just a, a, an avalanche of shame, and welcomed them, given them the courage and the hope and the faith to walk into a loving relationship with God, and amen to that. That is great news. Grace is a revolutionary message. It changes everything, including us, if we'll let it. And that's the rub. And that's what Jesus is getting at in this story. What does it mean to let it? What does it mean to let the grace of God change us? See, this is, this is what I'm finding, talking about the grace of God all the time and thinking about it all the time with myself. I found that we don't resonate as much with that part of the gospel. Now, there may be nothing that we can do to, to get God on our side, but there are things we can do and that we must do to get ourselves on his. And that's the part that eh, we hesitate on. Like, we love the unconditional love, acceptance, forgiveness, and affection of God. That part's all like unicorns and rainbows. Everybody loves that part. I love that part too. But it's in moments like this when Jesus says to receive the grace to accept your acceptance, to, to place yourself on God's side, repent. This is when we get nervous. This is when we get confused, if not you know, like put off altogether. So, so what is going on here? I think it's important for us, especially as storyline and as storyliners, um, because we exist because we believe, we deeply suspect that many people who walk away from church aren't necessarily rejecting God or faith or grace. They're just rejecting church or maybe us <laughs> or religious people. But that doesn't mean that no one will ever walk away from or refuse God's grace. And this, this is not only possible. Jesus is suggesting here that it happens People do walk away from God's grace. And so it might be a free gift, God's grace, but to accept our acceptance is to repent. And, and while it is a gift, it can also be confusing and it can also be, frankly, offensive. Martin Luther, the, the, the famous guy who started the Protestant Reformation, said this about repentance. Most people look at repentance and don't know what to do with it like a cow stares blinking at a new gate. Can't you just see it? Just like, what's that there for, right? It's confusing. Martin Luther also said this. He, one day he, he pounded 95 theses, 95 ideas on a church door, and it started the Protestant Reformation. And the very first one of these 95, number one on his list was all of life is repentance. That's, that seemed a little offensive sometimes. And this is why one of my favorite writers claims that the Bible, when you look at it in its totality, teaches this about repentance, that it is both an act of incredible weakness and enormous strength. 
all at the same time. He puts it like this. No action requires more human greatness in the weak form of humility, nor produces more human greatness in the strong form of hope than repentance. So Jesus is inviting us into something. And yes, it's amazing and confusing. It's beautiful and offensive. But when he calls us to repent, like any good gardener, he promises to be with us and to watch over us as we do. Good. Spencer and Abby, Norfolk. So great. Love it. So repentance is our chance to change our story. And in this encounter in Luke, Jesus is showing us that it's also a universal need. It's our chance to change our story, but it's also a universal need. There's this atrocity that takes place, happens in a church, like the state murders some people. It's absolutely horrible. Then there's this tragedy that at the, about the same time a building falls on some people. And what happens when things like that happen? We all do the same thing. We all ask, why? Why? Why did that happen to them? And here's the question really below that question. I think this is what I know at least is going on in me when I see something like that happen to somebody else. I think, you know, what did they do? Did they do something? Are people who suffer worse than those who don't? Did they do something that like deserves that like they had that coming? And that's like the subtext of this entire inter interchange that Jesus is happening. You know, when good things or bad things happen to us, he understands that we immediately begin to, to compare ourselves to others. Like, why am I doing so well in life? Like, 
Why, why are, why, am I better than other people? Like smarter and more hardworking? I guess I, des- I guess I deserve this for some reason. And on the flip side, like, why is everything going so terribly? Like, what did I do? What did I do to deserve this? Jesus knows that that's how we respond, whether it's happening to us or whether we're watching that in other people. And his answer to that question is, no, that is not how it works. That's not how life works. Now, he isn't saying the opposite, okay? He isn't saying that our effort and our skill, our expertise, our conscientiousness don't matter in life. They certainly do, and they make our life often go better. And he isn't saying that our short-sightedness or our selfishness won't result in a lot of self-inflicted suffering, because that also happens. But the bottom line is, when it comes to us, and the towers of life falling on us or just missing us. That's not how it works. No, our our personal morality, our faithfulness on the one hand, and yes, our irresponsibility and our selfishness, neither of those determine all of these circumstances of our lives. They don't. Sometimes bad things, horrible, tragic things, happen to really wonderful people. And sometimes really wonderful, amazing things happen to really bad people. That's how life is. And in every situation, what Jesus is saying here is, when the tower falls on you, or when the tower just misses you, you you don't wonder what did I do, what did you do to deserve it? Repent. That's what he's saying. Use both the beauty, the unspeakable beauty of life, and the unbelievable catastrophe of life. Use both as a path to return to God, to repent. That's what he's saying. And think about it. What's the alternative? Here's the alternative as best as I can figure it out. To take in life as it comes to us, good or bad, without repenting, without returning to God, well, that life will consume us in one way or the other. Because if things are going good, that life is going to consume us until we perish because we're on a treadmill of performance. Got to keep going. Got to go faster. Got to save more, do more, be more so that things continue to go well for me, right? And on the other end, you know, what, what happens when things are going poorly? Well, we're just gonna, we're gonna perish under the guilt of how we must have done something to deserve that failure, to deserve that loss or that tragedy or that atrocity. This is what he's talking about. Re- repent, return back to God or perish under all of that because it's never gonna stop and you can never win that game. Now, the reason this seems so weird to us, the reason we're so confused by Jesus' response to this atrocity and to this tragedy with repent, always repent, the answer is always to repent, return to God. The reason we're so confused by that is because we don't know where repentance is. What, what is it exactly? Well, it's not wallowing around in some like vague sense of guilt or self-loathing. Jesus is teaching us that repentance is the acceptance of at least two, but I think two basic fundamental realities. The conviction of two, let's call them like elemental truths about life and existence. And the first one is this. None of us get what we deserve. None of us get what we deserve. We cannot repent until we realize that no one gets what they deserve and that that is really, really good news. That's good news. The lead singer for the band U2, Bono, put it like this. Life either operates on karma or grace. And I'm counting on grace because if it's karma... 
I'm screwed. <laughs> now I want you to think about that. Bono is wildly successful, world famous, super wealthy, highly celebrated artist, right? And not only that, he's an incredibly good guy, like super generous person. I mean, he has literally raised, personally, hundreds of millions of dollars for the poorest of the poor around the world. And he is saying, if this universe runs on, you reap what you sow, I'm doomed. I think he's agreeing with Jesus here. And so what is, what's Bono's response? He's turning towards God. He's turning towards God's grace. He's trusting in not his own goodness, not in what he deserves, but in the goodness of God and the goodness that God has unleashed into the world through Jesus. Last week, I was meeting with a very dear friend of mine, former student of mine, now, like, I think almost 40 years old. <laughs> and uh, we were at Martin's in my office upstairs there. And, uh, <laughs> and we were talking, and he says, uh, Mike, I've got a question for you. He's like, if God's already on my side, like, he knows my, he knows my shtick, okay? He's like, if God's already on my side, if he accepts me as I am, he forgives me before I ask, and he loves me at my worst. And I stopped him right there, and I go, you've been listening. Even, he doesn't live here. I go, you've been watching. I caught you, right? So he quotes me back to me, right? And he says, if that's all true, why do I have to repent? And I'm like, well, that's a great question. Well, that's a really, really good question. So here's what I did. I asked him to imagine this scenario. I said, Rob, I want you to remember, go back to when you were in high school, okay? You used to come over to our house all the time. Imagine driving over to our house, and it's nighttime, and you turn down our street, South Cambridge, okay? And, to, and here's what you discover as you turn down South Cambridge, that our then six-year-old son, Jimmy, is playing in the middle of the street in the dark. So you whip into our driveway, Lisa and I are on the porch, and you're like, Mike, Lisa, Jimmy's out in the street. And we're like, yeah, oh, we know. Well, he's like, well, are you going to do something about it? Oh, well, yeah, we have. We forgave him. <laughs> Rob would be like, what? Like, Jimmy is still in the street. He's got to get out of the road or else. He's got to get out of the road or else. And, and if we were to say to you, Rob, I'm talking to Rob about this scenario, like, oh, we know, but we accept him as he is. We love him at his worst. And now, picture this, Jimmy's in the street. He's overhearing this conversation, and he chimes in from the street, mind you, going, it's true, Rob. They love me. I believe it. Now his head is spinning like, what in the world is going on? Now, he, he would go insane because this little boy is still in the street in mortal danger, even though he already has, and he does, the love, acceptance, forgiveness, and affection of his parents. Because here's why he's still in mortal danger. Because there's one thing missing from that good news, from that gospel. Repentance. Repentance. Because unless Jimmy returns to us freely, like by his own choice, if I run out into the street and I capture him and I drag him back to the yard, which is in real life what I do, right? But, but in this scenario, if I did that, Think about that. Theologically, he's now a pet. He's not a person. He's not a robot. He's not human. God created us to be free, co-creators. To come in out of this, to repent is to freely choose to come back out of the street into the yard. That's what accepting our acceptance looks like. See, the love, forgiveness, and acceptance, and affection, they're still there for Jimmy when he's in the street. I'm not withholding those things because he's in the street, but they aren't doing him any good. He's cut off from them. I know this, we have to think, think through this slowly, but, but that, that I haven't changed. 
But Jimmy's cut himself off from that. So returning to the yard in that scenario is repentance. It's where the love, acceptance, forgiveness, and affection of God matters and makes a difference in our real lives because we don't just theoretically or theologically have the love of God. We have God in our lives. But notice this, that Jimmy is still free to say in that scenario, grace, no thank you. I'm the captain of my soul. And you know what? In that scenario, or else, it's just a matter of time. We all know it. Or else is just a matter of time. You know, a lot of people have told me over the years, Mike, I can't, I can't believe in a God who allows suffering. And I get it. I mean, I watch TV too. I've walked with people through suffering. I've suffered myself. And believe me, I thought that and I get it. But then when you look at all of human history, if you look at the scope of what it is that makes us go and what is going on and the injustice throughout history, and even into today, like the depth of the depravity, the selfishness and the greed with which we, and I mean all of us, including me, tend to approach life, our insistence on like, living our life in the middle of the dark street, isn't the surprise of history not that there's so much suffering, but that there's so little? If we see that, if we can acknowledge that, none of us get what we deserve, that, that we have done nothing to earn our lives, to earn every breath, and everything else, that every heartbeat and sunrise, every harvest and birth and moment of peace is an undeserved and total gift from start to finish and another opportunity to return to God, to play in the yard. Well, that, I would submit, that is the greatness and the weak form of humility that repentance requires. Jesus is telling us we are desperately loved, already accepted, forgiven before we ask. And if we don't know that deep in our heart lies this beautiful, amazing, miraculous, and mysterious image of God that is longing to break through, yet it is held captive by a radical self-centeredness that says, me first, then we are playing in a dark street and we are being naive to the point of, or else. Naive to the point of perishing. So that's the first elemental conviction that repentance requires, I think, and it's this, none of us get what we deserve. And that's good news. The second one is this, this commitment or this conviction that repentance requires um, is to receive the grace of God, to accept our acceptance, is that we see and celebrate that God sees that first conviction and isn't going to stop. He is absolutely committed to saving us from the dark street, to saving us really from ourselves. In this parable, the fig tree, it's not producing fruit. It, it deserves to be cut down. But the gardener says, no, please don't. He begs with the owner, be please be patient. Let me care for it. Let me nurture it. Let me fertilize it. In one translation, it says, I'll dig a trench around it. I'll water it. I'll fertilize it. Give me time. There's good in this tree. There's good in this tree. See, in this parable, Jesus presents this nuanced view, this really complicated view of human nature, which is actually quite um, sophisticated and not at all what we normally see because the entire history of philosophy and religion in, in one way could be boiled down to two schools of thought about how we think about human nature. And one we can call the hero heroic vision and it goes like this. Uh, that vision of humanity is, look, we're all good through and through, start to finish. If anything ever goes wrong, if I ever do anything bad, the problem is all out there. It's all context. The system's messed up. That's what it is. It's our surroundings, societies to blame. Well, in that world, there's no need to repent. In fact, there's no need for a savior. We can just save ourselves because we're only one policy, one promotion, you know, one program or political arrangement away from paradise. We could just get that straight. 
But the other view is overly simplistic, I would argue, in the other direction. It sees human, human beings not just as broken, but as utterly depraved, like this tragic view of human nature, and it holds no hope for us to produce anything good whatsoever. We're not even worth saving at all. Well, clearly Jesus doesn't believe in either one of those, or really he brings them together because what he's offering is a balanced view, a realistic view of who we were made to be, who we've become, and, what, and who we can be again. Jesus faces the hard truth that something is wrong. Something is bad wrong in us. The problem isn't just our context or the systems out there but also the content, also the content of our character in here. And so we may not be flourishing, but we were designed to. We carry that within us. We are a walking image of God. We, we are designed to flourish, and if we'll repent in his care, we can bloom again. So to repent is not only to humbly acknowledge who we are now, it is to remember who we were made to be and to place ourselves in the hands of the God who's already on our side, to trust in the caretaker so that we can become ourselves again. And this is the greatness and the strong form of hope that repentance requires, to repent is to know that Jesus has done and will do anything, will stop at nothing to save us, to nurture us, to dig down to the roots of our life so that we will bear fruit and flourish. He will literally follow us into the dark street, step in front of an oncoming car called or else for us to love us into repentance.
guys. Okay. First money, now repentance. Please join us next week when we're talking about hell. <laughs> Look, I know this is a heavy subject, but it's good news. It's good news. Repentance is good, good news. I, um, the last question, what do you suppose the fruit is on this tree in Jesus's parable? I mean, obviously, like, we're the tree, God's the owner of the vineyard, Jesus is the gardener, and the fruit that the owner is looking for is love. It's love, the love of God alive and thriving in us, and the love of God coursing through us into the world. It's, God loves for, it's God's love for us, gathered, grown, and given away as graciously as it was offered to us in ways that make it visible and desirable and livable for everyone, everywhere, every day. That's the mission we've always been on together. That's the mission we all cherish and love. And it's a beautiful and wonderful mission. It gives us meaning and purpose and community and it requires repentance. Repentance is not a threat. It's an invitation. It's a promise. It's one offered in love, not anger. And it's one we turn to not out of fear, but with humility and hope. Now, I don't know what it looks like for you to repent. I think religion gets in trouble when it tries to prescribe that this is what it looks like for everyone. But I do wonder if maybe it begins by acknowledging that there is a captain of our soul and thanking God that it's him and not us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time and this place and this opportunity to be together. Thank you for loving us, for never giving up on us, for constantly inviting us to repent, to return to you, Thank you for following us into the dark street and freeing us from a life where everything is always up to our performance. Help us to see repentance as a daily reminder that while we may be more broken than we care to admit, we are more loved than we dare imagine. And help us to see repentance returning to you daily as exactly what we want and precisely what we need to grow and remain open, alert, expectant, and dependent on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for coming, folks. We'll see you next week.